Hi there, my name is Ganika Pinnam. And I'm Farika Pinnam. We're sisters and the co-founders of IDA. If you're an entrepreneur or a new and upcoming brand, discover customer and audience insights about your product niche at thinkida.com because we are where your customers are. As founders of IDA, we've immersed ourselves in the startup world and become obsessed with all things entrepreneurship. We've learned a lot along the way and still are. And now we want to share that with you, our listeners. Whether you're already a savvy business owner, just getting started, or an aspiring entrepreneur, you are in the right place. Join us as we journey through the ahas, the oh no's, the why me's, the ups and downs, and those serendipitous moments when something clicks and it all falls into place. Welcome to the Lightbulb Moment Podcast. Hi everyone, this is Verika, and welcome back to the Lightbulb Moment Podcast, and as you can probably tell from the title of this podcast, it is going to be all about personal finance, and I think this will actually be two parts, because Ganika, my co-founder, will be doing the next part, um, and this is something that we've been wanting to do for a while, and talk about finance on this podcast, um, we're just kind of thinking about how to approach it, so I'm really, really excited about today's episode. So we're going to be talking about the mindset and risk tolerance aspects, um, how to actually get started, and of course, tying it back to entrepreneurship and what that means for either quitting your job or retiring early altogether. So I have like four pages of notes, so let's just get started um, with it. And I want to start with giving some context. So I first started investing January of 2019 when I turned 20 years old. I started using Betterment that year, which I'm going to talk about different platforms. Um, and I started out pretty small, and then I got more into investing in 2020 because you know the stock market kind of crashed, so a lot of things were like quote unquote on sale. Um, so I got more into investing in 2020, and then this past year of 2021 is when I like learned um kind of the ins and outs. And I wouldn't say like I know everything yet, but I spent a lot of time learning about the back end of investing versus what I was doing previously, which is just putting the money in. Um, and I learned more about like retirement and things like that. So that's kind of what I want to share. And I really didn't care about like a couple years ago, I didn't even care about growing or making that much money, which kind of sounds odd to say, but I kind of self capped what I could make. I just figured like, okay, this is the amount of money I'll end up making, blah, blah, blah. And um, I didn't really care if I made a lot of money or like investing or saving or budgeting. Like I didn't do any of that. Um, I only really started budgeting like this past few months, I would say. So just being honest there, cause budgeting has always been kind of hard for me. And I realized that like through all this like research and stuff that I've been doing that it made me create more of an appreciation for growing and investing money, if that makes sense. So I think it's really important to kind of get into a mindset where first you accept that this is an important part of your life. Um, and of course, like money doesn't buy everything, right? Like we all know that. But I would say like, I don't agree with the statement that money can't buy happiness because up to a certain point, like if you're constantly in survival survival mode, it's hard to focus on anything else, right? To begin with. So it can at least get you out of that. So if you're in a place in your life where you, you're like financially struggling or you need to become independent, um, then it's hard to pretend that like money won't solve that part of your life. And once you can get out of that, you can focus obviously on things 
that we're like you genuinely have you from the inside out but i do think up to a certain level because it provides like freedom and because it provides stability money can make you like happier in your life right so uh, first getting into mindset that this is an important part of your life and then the other part of that mindset is like the risk factor of saving versus investing so right now if your risk tolerance is super super low you might not be investing at all or maybe not investing more than you know whatever your employer is taking on your paycheck because you are afraid that you know this money is like locked up away somewhere or you know you can't like physically see it so you'd like to have it in a savings account and while there is some merit to having some cash on hand um while stock investments are pretty liquid you know um it is nice to not have to sell those to pay for something that's like an emergency so it is nice to have cash on hand you don't want to have all your money in a savings account because that is actually more risky than just investing so even though the market has upturns and downturns eventually the market always trends up right so like if you just think about you know the world in general everything always costs more now than it did 20 30 years ago right or like in the age of your grandparents or your parents so the market's always trending up even though there's been um dips in between if you look at the bigger picture and with the savings account it's just going to stay what it is like the interest on the savings account is so so nominal like 0.01% that it doesn't even matter you're basically staying staying with static amount of money so if you think about that inflation is super high right like even if you've seen the news right now the dollar store has changed everything from a dollar to a dollar 25 um even little caesar's pizza for those who know is now um five dollars and fifty cents instead of five dollars which is what it's been for like many years now um so things like that where these brands that had like this kind of blanket price are now having to increase and having to change their branding because of the inflation so think about how much your dollar is going to get diluted and continue to do so over time because you're not investing so i would say one it's really important to um kind of work on that mindset too of just being comfortable with investing and seeing the upside so you can't get so caught up in the little up and down movements of it because in the bigger picture if you just save inflation is going to eat away at the value of your money anyway and later we're going to talk about um, inflation with respect to retirement and stuff so just keep that in mind the other thing with risk tolerance is to kind of figure out where you're at you can ask yourself these questions like if something fell let's say 10 percent or 20 percent would you freak out and sell or would you buy more buy the dip or would you stay where you're at right so think about those questions because that will kind of illuminate what your risk tolerance is at right now also think about are you the type of person who's going to monitor it every day like you're gonna wake up and check the price of your stocks and it's gonna stay on your mind every day or you know are you comfortable just letting it sit and hold for the long term and also, um, maybe if, you're, if your risk tolerance is really high, you might even feel comfortable taking out a margin loan. So a margin loan is basically when you're borrowing against um, the assets that you have right now. So you can actually do this pretty easily through Robinhood, um, where basically it lends you money to buy stocks, um, which you then end up paying back later. But... If you're, you know, if you need money to buy stocks because there's a dip or you really want to buy, but you don't have the cash on hand, you're taking out a loan to buy those stocks based on what your holdings already are, like the stocks that you already have, the value of them. 
So, you know, that's obviously a risky move because you could end up losing a lot of money if the value of your existing stocks falls and then you're going to have to pay back, you know, the institution that you borrowed from. So, yeah, that's like if your risk tolerance is really high. So, you know, would you feel comfortable doing something like that or does that freak you out, right? So, I mean, I've done that like once, um, but I probably wouldn't do it again. Um, but yeah, I would say my risk tolerance is pretty high, but not super high, like all on speculative investments or like buying thousands into like alternative crypto or anything like that. Um, another way to determine your risk tolerance is what your goal is. So are you trying to retire early? Um, are you trying to just focus on saving and a steady like income source to quit your job, like your nine to five? Or um, do you just want to nest egg when you retire at, you know, the regular age of like into your 60s when you're older and you just want some cushion, right? So that also determines like your investing strategy. So if you're trying to retire early, you're going to obviously be more aggressive um, than if you're just trying to build up a nest egg and retire at the regular amount of time or uh, versus if you're trying to quit your job now and build passive income because then you have to focus on investments that actually bring you dividends. Um, so one of these quotes that I like to kind of frame this, um, it's by Warren Buffett, and it's diversification may preserve wealth, but concentration builds wealth. So I really like that because it can help you determine your investing strategy in terms of, okay, are you trying to build wealth? Like you're trying to retire early or you're trying to quit your job, then you have to concentrate more as in obviously concentrate on the theme of investment investing, but concentrate on which securities you're buying um, because you're going to have to pay, place bigger bets, right? So it is more risky because you're putting a ton of money into one thing, like you're concentrating on a certain asset class or concentrating on a specific industry or stock. But if that does really well, then there you go. It's going to blow up and you're going to be building your wealth versus diversification, preserving wealth. So, you know, you probably heard of this general statement, like diversify, 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 so that, you know, like one industry tanks or like one asset class tanks, you're not, your whole portfolio and your net worth is not tanking. So that's more for like preservation of wealth. So if you're just trying to build like a safe cushion for yourself, um, you can, you know, make sure to diversify. But if you're trying to like increase your wealth drastically in a short amount of time, then it is more risky, but you're going to want to concentrate on placing big bets in a few asset classes. So um, with that said, I'm talking about risk tolerance. Hopefully those are kind of some um, good indicators of you determining your own risk tolerance because like I said, um, that's going to determine the makeup, makeup of your portfolio. Um, and Ganika, actually my sister, has a higher risk tolerance than me. While we both have a pretty high risk tolerance, um, like for example, one of our investments and we both invest into the same thing, it lost like 92% of its value and stayed at the bottom for like a very long time. And we just had to keep holding it and holding it and holding it. And eventually it ended up doing really well. But um, we didn't freak out and stuff because we just had faith that it was going to go up. So in terms of risk tolerance and investment strategies, we're definitely focusing a little bit more on concentration um, and a little bit riskier with the investments. But Ganika has actually higher risk tolerance than me and she's going to be doing the next episode. So I'm excited to hear from her as well. So talking about risk tolerance, deciding the makeup of your portfolio, let's get into the actual asset classes or let's say the different types of securities you can buy to make up your portfolio. So um, starting with your kind of accounts, different accounts for your investments, 
your 401k, right? So the IRS actually increased the annual contribution limit for your 401k. So the previous limit used to be 19,500 and now the IRS has increased it to 20,500. So that's the maximum amount of money that you can put into your 401k. And that's an important distinction because that's your personal contribution limit that does not include um, an employer match if you have it. So let's say you have a 50% match um, from your employer up to the IRS contribution limit. That means that it's up to the 20,500, 50% of that, so which is going to be 10,250. So if you do have that match from your employer, what that's going to mean is you have the amount that you contributed. So let's say you max it out and you put in the 20,500 and an additional 10,250 from your employer. So the total value of your 401k in one year is going to be 30,750. That makes sense. So the IRS contribution limits, your personal limit, not including the employer's contributions to your account. And then let's look at a different match situation. So let's say, because this match is 50% match up to the contribution limit, right? So a different example, a lot of employers will do 6% match of your salary from the employer. What that means is they will match only up to 6% of your salary, regardless of anything additional that you contribute. So 6% of, let's say you're making 70K would be $4,200, right? So your employer is only going to match up to $4,200 of your contributions to your 401k account. Whereas in the previous situation, it was a $10,250 match because the match is all the way up to the IRS contribution limit. So if you're in a situation where they're matching up to $4,200 or like, you know, 6% of your income, then while of course people say like, oh, you should max out your 401k, it's especially more important when you have a match from your employer to max it out because then you're getting the most amount of dollars you can out of them. But if your match is less, like, you know, 6% of your income or whatever, and it ends up being less than the total contribution limit, then you might not have to max it out because it's not like you're losing matching dollars, if that makes sense. But you still can, of course. You're not losing any money by not maxing it out versus other investments that you could put it into. Um, the other situation here is you might have a vesting period with your employer. So also then, um, I mean, while you can still contribute into the 401k, your match might have a vesting period. So that means that, um, you know, if you have like a, a one-year cliff and then the vesting period starts or, you know, however that's laid out in your contract, it basically means that maybe in the first year, you don't actually own your match from your employer. You're not even getting a match or maybe you're getting it. But if you quit your job, the match is not yours to keep. Um, and then you might, if you don't have a vesting period, then the match is yours to keep from day one. So then you would want to keep contributing because you own the match from your employer versus if you don't own the match from your employer until a certain you know, amount of time working at this job has passed. And then um, where does this money go from your 401k, right? So I found this kind of interesting because when you have a 401k, your employer has worked out with the brokerage firm to offer you a selection of options. Like I think they're typically at a discount too, but don't quote me on this. Uh, but you will typically have a selection of options when you go in to put your money from the 401k and invest it. And it likely won't be like everything that you see um, when you're like looking up like ticket prices or all the funds that exist, right? It'll be the mutual funds that are created by that brokerage. And um, you'll also see target date funds. So for example, 
My 401k is in a 2065 target date fund. And the way target date funds work is they are targeting this retirement date. So 2065, right? And the closer you get to that year, the more the balance of securities in that fund shifts from stocks to bonds, right? Because the closer you get to that date, they're trying to stabilize the value of it. So they're going to start putting more into bonds and less into stocks because obviously bonds are going to be less volatile. So if it's in 2065, and right now we're in 2022, this is going to be predominantly stocks. But the thing with the target date fund, um, so with my 401k, like I said, I have it in 2065, like very far out. But you can invest in a target date fund even outside of your 401k. So it's not a fund where it's like, oh, it's only in a retirement account, right? You can literally just open up another individual account wherever you want. And if you can look up a target date fund that you're interested in, you can invest in like 2030 if you want in your individual account. You can also do that in your 401k, of course. Um, but I didn't because 2030 is so close and I don't want the heavy mix of it to shift to bonds so soon. But if you wanted to have that kind of exposure too, then you could definitely invest in any date that you want. So the date that you're investing in is not actually like, oh, that's your retirement date. It's just the name for it, indicating how the fund is going to progress as the years go. Another benefit from your employer is an ESPP. So ESPP is an employee stock purchase plan. And obviously, like you're going to find out all the information about how these work, the ins and outs from your employer themselves. But I just wanted to touch on it really quick because so with my personal experience i was like oh i'm not i don't think i'm gonna do an esp because you know i might as well just take that money and put it elsewhere or whatever but i started doing the espp because if you think about it it's like an immediate gain because espp to just allows you to basically buy the company's stock at a 10 percent discount or 15 percent discount or whatever your company has so you're making that money back immediately so if you think about it let's say you put money into your ESPP and then, you know, at the end of the quarter or whatever, it'll buy the stocks for you, but at a 10% discount, right? And then let's say right after the stocks are bought, you decide to sell it. You already made a minimum of 10% because you bought them at a 10% discount. So you're immediately making a gain. And if you hold it, if it's like a blue chip stock and it's going to keep going up, then you're going to end up making more than 10% because you're going to benefit from both the discount that you bought it at and the growth of it. So if you haven't really considered the ESPP before, even if you were like, you know, and you're not really sure that you want to buy a bunch of individual stocks or you don't want to buy your company's stock, just think about it as like an immediate gain. So you can literally just sell it as soon as the transaction goes through at the discount. Another note that I want to make, which is also something that I learned recently, is taking out of your accounts early. So first, before I talk about this, I do want to address Roth versus traditional accounts. So Roth basically refers to post-tax income. So you're paying that tax on that income now, you're reporting it to the IRS, but your future earnings aren't going to be taxed. So when you take that money out, um, none of the money is going to be taxed, not the gains, not any of the money you take out, none of it, which is really cool. And a traditional account is basically, you're not reporting it on your taxes now. So let's say you're making, again, 70K and you decide to put the 20k into your 401k into a traditional 401k you're going to be reporting your income to the irs at 50k so you're only being taxed on 50k but later when you do take this money out you're going to be taxed on the amount you're taking out because you didn't get taxed on it now but the thing is you don't get taxed on just the amount that you put in the 20k you're also going to get taxed on the growth of it whereas with a Roth you don't get taxed on the growth either so it's like free growth so that's kind of the difference between both and um, with your 401k you can pick a Roth or traditional 
And you can also have an individual account, by the way, that's also Roth or traditional. So my 401k is a Roth 401k, for example, meaning that I'm paying tax on it now, but I won't have to pay tax on it later when I take it out. And I have a Roth IRA, which is an individual retirement account. Um, that's also Roth, but let's say you wanted to do one account that's like paying the taxes now and one account that's paying the taxes later, you can do. So anyway, going back to taking it out early and how this plays in, I, full transparency, I'm not maxing out my 401k right now. And I did increase the contribution percentage a little bit this year, but I wasn't maxing it out because the age to take out money out of your 401k or even your IRAs without a penalty is 59 and a half. So it's like very specific. So I thought you can't take it out before 59 and a half unless you have specific reasons. So the IRS dictates specific reasons that qualify for taking it out. Let's just like you need to put money on a house or something like that. But I dug into it a little bit more and turns out you can take it out early, but you will be paying taxes and a 10% penalty. So if you do take it out early, it doesn't end up mattering if it's Roth or a traditional so much. I mean, it matters a little bit because on one of them, you still pay taxes when you put it in. But when you take it out early on these accounts, you're going to pay income taxes for taking it out and a 10% withdrawal penalty because you're taking it out early and your income taxes are going to be whatever tax bracket you're in at the time. Even though that sounds negative, that was actually like a positive indicator for me. And that's what um, kind of got me to increase contribution percentage because I initially was, <laughs> this might sound weird, but I was like, okay, if it's at 59 and a half, like what's the point, you know, I mean, obviously you're going to want to have money then, but I was like, I might as well start investing in other things because I don't want to just wait until 59 and a half to take this out. But turns out you can take it early. So that could be a positive thing for some of you maybe um, like it was for me the other thing to consider here between whether you want to make your account traditional or Roth is your tax bracket so the reason mine is Roth is one because I don't want to pay taxes on the growth of it which you're going to end up doing if you're in a traditional account whether it's an IRA or a 401k but also because I expect to be in a higher tax bracket later when I do take it out and that's going to be the case with a lot of people probably because if you're starting out and you're young or, you know, maybe you're even a few years into your career, but you're just starting out one of these accounts, you're going to level up in your career most likely and level up into a different tax bracket that's higher. So if you do that, the tax bracket that you're in now that you're getting taxed to put into your account, you're not paying as much taxes as you're going to end up paying. When you're in the higher tax bracket, you're taking money out of your retirement accounts. Unless, of course, you're taking out a very small amount. Like, um, let's say you're taking out way, way less than what you're making. Then you're going to be ending up paying less taxes because a lot of times in retirement, people do live on less than they're making because typically people have paid off their mortgage. And maybe if you have kids, you're not like really paying for your kids anymore. Or just the fact that you're not having to put money into your savings accounts and retirement accounts. Like you're retired, so you're just taking out what you need to live with, not also money to save and money to invest and stuff. So you might end up in a lower tax bracket. And if that's the case, then a traditional would be a good idea for you because later you're going to be in a lower tax bracket when you pay the taxes versus now. But because I think I might be in a higher tax bracket, I am doing Roth. So hopefully that made sense. Moving on into mutual funds. Hey, have you ever wanted to create your own podcast and share your own light bulb moments with the world? If so, now's the perfect time to do so because audio is the future of the internet and Anchor is a perfect place to do it. So Anchor is a podcasting platform you can find at anchor.fm and it's what we use to create the light bulb moment podcast. 
So Anchor is amazing because first of all, it's completely free to use. Yep, completely free. And there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. So I've used Anchor to record with other guests on a mobile app, and you can also edit on your computer. And Anchor will distribute your podcast for you across so many platforms. So Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all the other major podcast streaming sites. So you don't have to set up individual accounts and try to distribute to all of those places. And you can also make money from your podcast with no minimum subscribers needed. And it's basically everything you need to record, edit, and publish your podcast in one place all for free. So I highly encourage you to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Good luck. And ETFs, again, we're still talking about your different accounts or the different types of securities you can invest in, which is going to help you decide the makeup of your portfolio. I can already tell this episode is going to be so long. I don't even know if I'm going to split this episode into two parts now that I think about it, but we'll just get through it. Um, it'll be fun. But like I said, I, I have a lot to talk about because I have just been so obsessed with this topic over like the past year. So mutual funds and ETFs. So basically, these are pools of fractional shares of a bunch of stocks. And it's all packaged as like buying one pool of stocks or like one fund, you can think of it. You've probably heard of funds that track the S&P 500. So the S&P 500 is like the top 500 companies that are dictated by Standard & Poor's. And it's like a list of the top 500 companies. And of course, like companies move in and out of this list. And a fund that tracks this index, like the S&P 500, is going to have fractional shares of the companies from this list of 500 companies. And other ETFs can also exist that are specific to an industry. I actually really like these. So I do invest in the S&P, but also like for particular sectors, like let's say you think that AI is going to be really big and blockchain or meta or whatever, like, you know, certain industries that you think are going to do really well, you can buy ETFs for those industries if you're not sure like which companies in those industries are going to do really well. So, you know, when people talk about a certain industry and they're getting really hyped about it and you can kind of tell it's going to be the future, but you're not really sure like who the winners are going to be, you can buy ETFs of this industry, which is going to have shares of a bunch of different companies in that industry. So, you know, if the industry trends upward overall, hopefully this ETF and companies that they put in it are going to trend upward overall. The one thing I want to point out with mutual funds and ETFs is the expense ratio. This actually ends up playing a role into how much money you're going to make. So for example, the Vanguard ETF that tracks the S&P 500 has an expense ratio of 0.03%. And the, the ETF that I'm talking about here, the ticker is VOO or VU for anyone interested. So this expense ratio is 0.03%, which is three hundredths of a percent, right? And this is the lowest expense ratio in my portfolio right now. And the highest one in my portfolio, which I tried to find, is 0.75 of a single percent. And the general guideline I've been using since I started paying attention to the expense ratio is to keep it under 0.7%. So clearly I didn't with the highest one because I think I bought it before I even started paying attention to the expense ratios. But it turns out it actually makes a difference for the amount of money that you're going to end up making because let's do like an example. So if you're investing like $1,000 into these two different funds, right? The, ones, the one that's at 0.03%. The Vanguard ETF, and then the other one that's at 0.75 of a percent. Let's say you're investing $1,000 into each, and they both have a 10% return. Let's just assume that. At the end of one year, you're going to pay 
30 cents in fees for the Vanguard one, just 30 cents. And for the other one, the 0.75% one, you're going to pay $7.50 in fees. So that's already a big difference, right? Like 30 cents versus $7.50. But you might just be like, okay, it's like seven bucks in a whole year. Who cares? Like a coffee or something. But the difference keeps getting bigger and bigger the more years you hold these investments. So after 10 years, assuming you're not adding any more money into it, still just the original thousand that you put in, and it's still a 10% return, you will have paid approximately $7 total for the 0.03% expense ratioed ETF, just $7 total across the 10 years, and $171 for the other ETF with the 0.75% expense ratio. So that's a huge difference over 10 years, paying $7 versus $171, right? Um, and of course, this example was assuming that you didn't add any more money, but you're going to likely to keep adding more money to your investments, right? Or you're going to be likely to keep adding money. So the difference you're paying in fees is just going to keep increasing and increasing because instead of reinvesting the full amount of dividends that you're getting, which can compound and make it even bigger, the amount of money that you're going to make, you're instead paying fees. So you've got to be careful with that. Go for the higher expense ratios only if you think the returns on that versus a cheaper fund is going to be significant enough to offset the fees that you're paying. So if I'm between two ETFs that are both kind of tracking like a similar index or a similar industry, and now Robinhood actually has this cool feature that they added where you can see the percentage of the different types of securities that are in an ETF. It's not going to show you the exact ones, at least I don't think, but the main page of the stock will show you the percentage of the types of industries inside that ETF. If you if you use Robinhood, you'll see what I mean. So when I'm comparing two different funds, I've been looking at the expense ratio now, like if other things are pretty similar, like the returns are pretty similar, the price of it and what it contains. Um, I've been looking at the expense ratio to determine which one to buy. And again, that's not financial advice, but just something to keep a lookout for. Now the final bit that I'm going to talk about here in this section is crypto and NFTs because obviously like NFT is actually the word of the year for 2021 and I think crypto might have been the word of the year for 2020 so obviously all the rage. I've just been getting into crypto over the past year and a half I would say and crypto doesn't make a lot of my profile uh, right now and NFTs like I have a couple of super low-cost NFTs and a bunch of like free ones that I happen to get so nothing crazy like I'm not really fully versed in it myself, but I did start learning about it more this summer. I took this course on crypto. It was called Hacks, H-A-X, for anyone that's interested. I'm not sure if it's still running, but it was really good. And that kind of helped me learn a little bit more about crypto. And my main takeaway from that was a lot of other projects are built on Ethereum, on the Ethereum blockchain. So the Ethereum blockchain has Ether, which is the coin, right? The ETH coin that you've probably seen around. Um, and now, especially with NFTs, a lot of trades are happening with ETH. There's also um, other NFTs that you can buy with like Solana and stuff, but a lot of NFT trades are happening with ETH, which you'll see like if you go on OpenSea or, you know, even if you're on Instagram, you're going to see like the prices that these NFTs are trading at are in ETH. Right. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And the other thing is even other coins are built on the Ethereum blockchain. Right. Which means that the more transactions there's on there are on the Ethereum network. And my words are getting twisted up. The more transactions that there are on the Ethereum network, the gas fees are going to make the value of the Ethereum coin ETH go up. So I've been bullish on ETH for that reason, because so many other projects are built on it on the Ethereum blockchain. So that is my personal preference. Again, not advice, but 
yeah, that's like my one main takeaway from the crypto course, I would say. Uh, and again, this is just something that I've been getting more into. So I don't have a lot to say here, but I did want to touch on that. Okay, I just wanted to add another quick bit here about NFTs, um, which I remembered after finishing this episode. So a couple tips here. One, um, there's gas prices that you pay when you buy NFTs, right? And this is basically you're paying a fee for someone to verify this transaction. And the gas prices are going to be higher depending on the volume of transactions in the network at that time, right? So if you want lower gas prices, check at nights and on weekends, um, like nights like after 11 p.m. or like midnight. And this actually makes a really big difference. So like I said, I don't own a lot of NFTs or anything, but I did buy a couple cheap ones recently. And literally the gas prices were so high at certain times that I would check, like even like double the actual cost of the item. So it was a lot and I just waited and waited like and I would keep checking and eventually I got a pretty low gas um, fee. So I was able to buy it. So where I was monitoring the gas fees is I got this Chrome extension. It's called Ethereum gas price extension. Um, and it's free and you can just add it to your browser so you can check the Ethereum gas fees at the time. The other thing I would also say about buying NFTs is, so you buy NFTs by having, it depends, like obviously if you're buying NFTs through the Ethereum blockchain, right? Obviously if you're buying NFTs on the Solana blockchain, then you would need to um, own that coin. So let's just say, you know, I'm going to use the OpenSea example and with OpenSea, when you buy NFTs, you can connect a bunch of different wallets. Like you can connect MetaMask, Coinbase wallet, whatever you want. And that's where you're like storing your Ethereum and you're going to pay with this wallet to get the NFT, right? But the thing is, um, I got burned with this recently where if you want to buy something, you need to have that money in your wallet for the time of the drop, right? Because these NFTs have like a specific drop time and then you have to get it when it drops or else it's going to either sell out or it's gonna, the pre-sale is gonna be over and then it's gonna go into the public mint, which is typically like a higher price. Or it might completely sell out and then all you're gonna be left with is the resales on OpenSea. So what you need to do is to make sure, like if you are interested in NFTs, to have some money already in your wallet because, um, a couple weeks ago, I wanted to um, get this NFT, right, that was dropping, and I just found out about the drop, like, the night before the drop, okay? So, um, I went to go buy the amount of ETH that I needed, and then go transfer it into my MetaMask wallet, and it doesn't matter what wallet you're using to buy the NFTs, but I'm using MetaMask, and what happens is, yeah, I, I was able to buy the ETH, but I couldn't transfer it out of where I bought it, which is like, you know, you can buy it on Coinbase, crypto.com, doesn't matter, into the wallet because the bank transfer hadn't finished yet, right? So because they need, so even though these apps let you buy it because they know the transaction's coming, they won't let you transfer what you just bought out of the app until it's verified. And it can't be verified until you've paid for it, right? So that, until the money from your bank actually gets deposited to Coinbase or to crypto.com or whatever. And that takes a few business days. And the thing is, I tried that night, like, so many different methods. Like, I was trying to do, like, maybe, like, a wire transfer or, like, an ACH transfer or, you know, buying with, like, a credit card. But they all have limits. Like, you know, you can, if you want to do, like, an instant transfer, you can try. But, you know, it will have, like, a $300 or $400 limit. And the NFT I was trying to buy was more than that. So, basically, I, w I wasn't able to get it because I didn't have 
the money transferred into my wallet in time for the drop, even though I had that much ETH in um, like my accounts. So long story short, uh, my lesson learned from that is to, um, if you are interested in like getting NFTs, to have some money already transferred into your wallet and um, to buy like ETH consistently so that you have enough ETH saved up that you can actually transfer it out when you need it versus trying to buy a bunch of ETH just for this drop, but it doesn't go through in time because the bank needs to process the transaction, which takes like five business days or whatever. So yeah, that's just um, two couple notes. One about the gas prices, just get the extension. And two, um, make sure you're buying ETH consistently or Solana, whatever, and make sure that you are putting this into your wallet. So back to the rest of the episode. Okay. So you thought we're going back to the rest of the episode. Haha, we're not. Okay, just one more quick note, and this is going to be short. Basically, again, after I filmed the episode or recorded the episode and recorded that little bit of NFTs, I was doing some research for myself because I wanted to buy some more NFTs, and I came across this cool thing called fractional.art, and that's the name of the website. And that's where you can basically buy uh, fractional NFTs because I was thinking, like, I wanted to buy some of these more expensive NFTs, but I can't, you know drop 72 ETH on a board ape and I thought it would be really cool to have fractional NFTs like we have fractional shares you know and turns out we do and this is a completely do it your own risk thing because some of these are not verified like I'm trying to figure out myself still so I'm not sure like how legitimate this is I mean fractional.art is supposedly legitimate but I'm not sure if you're actually getting fractional shares with these NFTs you have to make sure the contract addresses are right between what you're trying to buy and what's in the fraction pool. So this is completely, you know, do your own research, dig into it more, this thing. But I just thought it was really cool and I wanted to share it as part of the NFT segment of this episode. And now we are going back. Okay. And of course, there's also other asset classes that you can invest in, like real estate or partial ownership of a home or owning REITs, which are basically like ETFs for real estate, and it stands for Real Estate Investment Trust. And you can also invest in fine wine or like fine art, angel investing in early stage startups. You can do that through something like Republic. So when we talk about like portfolio makeup, there's all these different assets that you can invest in. But here we just talked uh, mainly about individual stocks, ETFs, and you know speculative things like crypto into one bucket. And I'm not including real estate here, even though that is like a pretty big part of you know like growing your wealth but we might do an episode on it for fun later once we get more into it ourselves but yeah looking at just you know stocks individual stocks etfs and you know things like crypto or nfts um you have to decide what percentage of your portfolio you want each of those to be or to make up and then also decide what sectors you want to invest in so which industries that you're very optimistic about and if you want to do individual stocks you can stock pick and pick some stocks from these industries or you can just go with ETFs and kind of play that safer route as well and just get started with opening accounts and investing. So that's going to be my next spiel here with the opening accounts and just getting started. And of course, keep in mind that if you are doing an ESPP, you're obviously purchasing individual stocks of your company, especially if you're planning on holding it and not selling it immediately. And then with the 401k, there's going to be those are going to be mutual funds, so those are like already going to skew your portfolio a bit towards that index fund ETFs bucket. So what we're talking about now is like actively investing, like after this money is taken out of your paycheck, 
the amount that you're going to be putting into your individual accounts. So when you're thinking about the portfolio makeup, keep in mind that part of it, if you have a 401k, is already going to be going towards that. And if you have an ESPP, it's already going to be that individual company stock. So if you decide like, hey, I want my portfolio to be 10% crypto and like 50%, you know, ETFs and mutual funds and like 40% individual stocks, just keep that in mind. So anyway, I found the percentage stuff kind of interesting. Like I like to run the numbers and stuff sometimes. And actually what I recently found out is that my portfolio is a bit skewed because I thought I had more in ETFs than I did, but only like 23% of my portfolio is ETF. So I'm going to try to increase that a little bit just to kind of stabilize it. And then a, a very small percentage of my portfolio is crypto right now, like I mentioned. So I'm going to try to increase that as well. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that segment of this personal finance episode. And I'm going to stop it right here. And in the next segment, we're going to pick back up with going into starting with investing, creating those accounts, my recommendations for platforms, and then going into talking about the entrepreneurship aspect of it, which is quitting your job and the math behind that or retiring and all of that fun stuff. So I will catch you in the next segment and goodbye for now. Want to get a workbook detailing steps you can take for your business today, as well as our top recommendations for entrepreneurs? Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, take a screenshot, and email it to contact at thinkida.com. Thank you for listening to the Lightbulb Moment Podcast. We'll see you here next time.